Hello, it's Graham. Welcome to a classic big interview. Today, join me. We're going back to season 2015-2016. This is what I had to say about it back then. The reason that we began to do these podcasts, the big interview with me, is football gives you a shot of adrenaline and happiness and does things that you can't understand. Time and time again, it builds to climaxes that are as dramatic as anything that art, theatre, opera ever invented. One of the guys that we always aspired to talking to was Jamie Carragher. And the reason is, when you approach reporting on football for a living, you can make a choice whether you want to appear cool and always in the right, whether you let your passion for the subject spill out at the risk of being maybe called naive or boyish. But I like to approach my work with my heart on my sleeve, open, honest and full of a passion for the subject. That matched with Jamie, who played that way, who inspired me, who I loved watching, learn and change. In this interview, he'll talk about how he rates his ability, what made him a player to lift four European trophies. He'll make me laugh, as I knew he would. And he'll take me back to the first time I met him, which was in a Legends game in the Olympic Stadium in Munich, just before Chelsea Bayern Munich in the European Cup final. He was there with his boy, who's a talented footballer. And he told me about having gone as an Everton fan to, I think, the quarter of the semi-final of the Cup Winners' Cup with Everton when he was eight years old, taken by his dad, because already football at eight, particularly Everton in those days, was an all-encompassing passion. We're going to go on, we're going to talk about Stephen Gerrard, obviously, Alex Ferguson, Gary McAllister. We're going to talk about Istanbul. And today is the anniversary of Istanbul. Therefore, I give you one of the heroes of that night, one of the heroes of the most incredible football match you will ever see, Jamie Carragher. The joy of this is that I want to talk to people that I admire, people who have inspired me, but people who I suspect feel... The same childlike excitement for football. You never lose that adoration of football, its eccentricities, its skill, its stories. But I want to start with a little bit of trivia. Right? I've got a scratch that I've never itched. <laughs> Liverpool and Ring of Fire. Oh, OK. Why? <laughs> I really want to know. I broke my leg in 2003, and so on an away game... I went on a coach with my dad and friends who went on a away game for a pub in, in Kirby called the Fantail. And, you know, they'd go home and away everywhere and they passed the time, they, a tape would go in and there was fans of uh, Johnny Cash and they used to sing it on the coach. And then it, how, I don't know where it, that's where I first heard it. And then it just found itself coming into the stadium in the ground on that Champions League run 2005. I think it may have been Leverkusen away. I think we're the first time it sort of originated. And my dad and a few others try and take the credit, I think. He <laughs> uh, used to go on that coach, the fantail coach from Kirby. 
But um, that's the first time I heard it. I didn't know it was just the lads on the coach liked it, but how it got sort of to be this theme tune that you associate now with 2005 and a, and a song that still gets sung now, especially on away games or they play it before the game at Anfield, just just went from there, Johnny Cash. So I think the credit should go to uh, the lads on that bus from there, Kirby. But you'll never, none of us will ever be able to hear that again without the hair in the back of your neck stand up. It will just transport you back to, I think maybe you and Stevie with your yeah, arms on yeah. each other in front of a camera with scars wrapped and the cup's been lifted it's iconic. It's like a where were you moment when you hear that song. I can't listen to it anymore. Yeah, I mean that that pitch they've got. That's I think the iconic pitch of both of us kissing the European Cup, singing along to that. And it's not even the words. It's without uh, the words, just sing along to the tune. And I think we'd have moments like that when something special happens, like Istanbul. There's lots of quirky things that people will remember on the journey. It's not just the games. It, there's loads of little things. I think that was part of it. You know, the song that was part of it. I mean. In the past, clubs have had the FA Cup final. They sing a song, don't they, or something that gets linked to it. That was, uh, but that was the one and only Johnny Cash. You've reminded me. I didn't think, but we all go in the cup with that Yeah, how we all exactly. do. What, what impact does music, or the right music, or atmospheric or unifying music? What impact does it have on a mood, a squad, a dressing room? I ask you that because there was a stage in two thousand and eight, nine, when for some reason Pep Guardiola insisted that they played a cold play, Viva La Vida, or Yeah, whatever. yeah, yeah. And it caught like Ring of Fire, and even the players that didn't like it, it then became not just a superstition, it was something that unified, and then they put it on in Rome, and I don't know how they'd arranged it, and it's booming out over the speakers in Rome, and they've just beaten Manchester United, whatever, and it felt more than just like, oh, there's a song that we all know it. What does the right music do in a dressing room or in a season or... Well, the music in a dressing room, I was even though I was a senior professional, they, they say they normally sorted the music out, but music for me, I never sorted that out. But what I do remember, even as a kid, I was an Everton fan. I can remember the songs I sang as an Everton fan in the mid-80s. I remember then sort of watching Liverpool teams as I was just getting in, and the songs you used to sing and the, the songs you'd associate with at a certain time, like... You know, the great John Barnes, you think of the Anfield rap, you think of, you know, John Barnes and the, the world in motion. As a kid, I, I, I still think of the, the songs the other day. I think Everton's FA Cup song was Here We Go. I always remember, at the time, Everton and Liverpool wanted to win the league one year. And the song ever told you, source, hand it over, hand it, hand it over, Liverpool. So you'd be like... So as much as the football, you remember those sort of... I remember... Football being on the terraces songs rather than being in the dressing room. If I'm being honest, I was never a massive music fan about that band or that yeah, artist. Yeah. It was more the songs I sort of sang on the terraces. You see, I know you grew up a blue, but when you grew up at a distance and I grew up in the 60s, the thing that you taught was that singing from the cop was witty. Mm. A pop song would come, they take it, they'd adapt yeah, it, yeah. and they'd have their own songs, and there was real wit. Now, I don't want to go down the negative route because one of the things that soured football is what modern kids sing to mm. abuse people but there used to be football music singing and wet used to be absolutely knitted in particularly in your city I think Liverpool fans especially with the cop and I think where you never walk alone come from I think it was I think even right in the 50s and 60s used to basically play the, the top 10 in the charts or the top 20 before the game and, and I think they maybe picked up on that song I think that a famous one I think they sang to I think Gary Sprake was it, Careless Hands was it? Uh, to <laughs> Leeds keeper. Yeah. Did he throw one in? Yeah, well, maybe cost him the title. Or? Yeah, exactly. Things like that. So, I mean, fortunate the city you're from. Careless you have that. <laughs> that was, I think, a famous one that we've heard in the past. 
So, Istanbul, 10 years. Mm. Can't believe it. But you won the European Cup. You did what Liverpool players are supposed to do. You know, it was a fantastic thing. And I, and I went back and before we chatted, I looked. And you won four European trophies, 11 senior trophies at Liverpool and a youth FA Cup as well, which is a really, really big trophy hall. Yet, I won't swear, but you lived in a time of Alex Ferguson. You had to go up against him when his single motive to begin with was to knock Liverpool off its mm. effing perch and to make Manchester United great. Do you look back and think that he was a curse in my playing life? Have you found respect for him subsequent to your career? Could that have been 22 trophies or mm. 25 trophies, if, no, if not for him? I've, I've got massive respect for Ferguson. I, I actually look at my career and, and think of the trophies that we won. Every player... No matter what he's won, we'll always say he wants more, and I'm no different. I still think, did I do enough? Could I have done more? I should have done more. I should have done this, should have done that. But not even Ferguson. He's that's one of the greatest managers of all time. The greatest Manchester United manager there's ever been. I think that's right, even just surpassing to Matt Busby. But mm-hmm. we were up against Mourinho, one of the best managers of all time. Arsene Wenger, one of the best managers of all time, especially in our game, in the British game, if you're thinking... Well, certainly the top ten, if you're talking about the top five or six maybe managers to ever manage in our country, those three names have got a great shout of being in there. That's what we were up against at that time. So to actually look at what we come out with and what we won, trophies we won, considering the competition at that time, I think I'm not lucky but sort of proud of what we did considering the competition. But in terms of Ferguson, no, I mean, I always got on brilliantly well with Alex Ferguson. I didn't know him that well, I must say. Two or three times we had words in tunnels at half-time, at the end of a game, both passionate about your team. But he written me a nice letter when I finished. So I uh, I got his address off Michael Owen and uh, returned the favour, you know, written him a letter back. And uh, I actually asked, could I, I meet, meet him, is probably the wrong way, but sort of have a, what we're doing now, have a football chat, chat. have a meal. Because, yeah. listen, you're rivals, but... Any Liverpool fan or supporter who doesn't have respect for what he did and all his knowledge of football, that's just that's just stupid. So, and he only lives half an hour on the road, he's only mansion like he's at the other end of the world. So I went and met him, and had a couple of hours with him, had a meal with him, talking football, my experience at Liverpool, his Man United teams, how it started off, you know, talking about players now, then. And, and the one thing I took from it is memories. I mean, my memory's pretty good about football, remembering games when I was a kid and games when I played. But I mentioned the game to him. I mean, I was an Everton fan as a kid. And I mentioned the game to him in 1987. I went to Old Trafford. And uh, Everton won the league that year, 87. I think the game finished 0-0. And I don't know how it would come up in conversation. But he told me a story about the game. I'm thinking, that's how long ago was that? He knew what system they played. He played three at the back. He had to pop up one of his players, and it was Graham Hogg, that he'd give the formation away in the paper the day before. And, you know, all that. I'm thinking, to remember that, the games he's been involved in, especially... No disrespect, that is not an ageism uh, slant on him, but the games he's been involved in, how old he was to, to instantly know what had gone on a little bit in that game, I just thought it was fascinating. I know I don't look back at him and think, listen, who knows? I, I think I was fortunate to have Jared Hulley, Rafa Benitez, uh, Kenny Daglish, yes. Roy Evans, so I think, you know, whoever your manager is, but there's no doubt he had a massive impact on the uh, sort of situation with, with Liverpool and Manchester United. As I've listened to you, I don't know you very well, but in the times we've spoken, it's matched with what I saw when I watched you play. A fantastic ability to read the game, to inspire, to lead, to give the maximum that you had on any given day or any given season. And remember, I grew up in Aberdeen, so he 
did for my club and my mm. life, what he then went on to do for. And it always struck me that you're one of the players. I know he wanted to sign Pepirena. He was very keen on Pepirena. One stage didn't happen, whatever. You're one of the players I've always thought not only he'd have chosen if he could, but I suspect you'd have blossomed under that kind of, mm. you know, leader captain relationship. Never happened, never going to happen. But it's the type of thing that. Well, he's after managed Liverpool. I wouldn't be playing for Man United, I'm sure you're that. I thought it must have been strange to watch him doing all those things and you think, geez, that's what we should have been doing here. Mm. You know, you had great managers, but he almost gutted the club and built the whole thing, the standards right everywhere. Mm. And that's maybe one of the things that I took from rereading your book that you lived in a, at a time when you were, you know, you were blessed to have played with some exceptional footballers and, you know, the impact of Julio to begin with and then Rafa and winning in Europe. Oh, fantastic! But that comparison in overall standards, mm. where things weren't maybe done correctly or the right attitude wasn't shown right around the club, that was a curse that you had to live with in your career at Liverpool. Uh, I love football. I always look at other managers, and the managers I mentioned before. I'd love to play under Ferguson, Mourinho, Wenger. These great managers you look at, Pep Guardiola. People sort of ask you what managers were like, different ones, strengths and weaknesses. Of course, they all have that. But I never, even when a manager didn't quite work out for Liverpool or it didn't go as well as we would have liked I never said oh he was doing that wrong I always took something from them they're not idiots these people every manager I'd always take the good bits from it people wouldn't say oh you take away the bad bits they'd always learn something there's always something they take different from the last fella or they saw something differently or you know different things I was I was a sponge with managers why 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 did you have your mindset like that to be honest the club I was at I mean you see other clubs around the world and they talk about you know, players being maybe more powerful than a manager. You see that maybe in foreign clubs, maybe the big Spanish giants. But at Liverpool, the respect for the manager is probably bigger than maybe any other club in the world in terms of players and fans. But when Liverpool win, the fans, it's the manager. I think it starts with Shankly. It's It was, OK, they've had great players, mm-hmm. but the fans, it's always... The respect for the manager at Liverpool, I think, is as big as anywhere. It's always, always flags of the managers mm-hmm. on the cop. You know, Shanks and, and, and the ones who won the European Cup, there's that flag, and there's great players who played in those teams. And maybe at other clubs, it's it's about the player who won us the Europe. Whereas I think at Liverpool, it's the manager. So there was, I always think the manager's 20, 30 years older than me, he's got more experience. I've never been a manager. I've never ever questioned the manager or said, why are we doing this in training or why are we doing that? Or, and I think it was, it was funny. I think Benitez maybe was used to. Maybe players question him, maybe a Valencia and different things. And when he first came, he sort of laughed at, not laughed at us, but a bit, everything he'd say, we just do. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, he, and he said, I think in a training session, he sort of, we didn't know what he was doing, but it was a bit of a test. It might have been a day before the game. And he said, I want you to do this many runs. And we just did it. Halfway through, I think he said, No, why have you let me do that? A player abroad would say, But why would, why would we do it? I think the English mentality, or my mentality, is just the manager says you do that, you're doing it. It's, it's a soldier's mentality. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're a warlike people. Yeah. And if your captain or your sergeant major says do something, mm. we, we do it. Mm. I think that's in our genes. Yeah, exactly. I honestly do. When he said that to you, so, all right, lads, stop the exercise. The point wasn't to get you fit. The point was to say, you know, stuff it, Rafa. When he said that to you, were you stunned? That's Rafa, bizarre. Yeah, Rafa's the, the type of manager. It's all about football for him is the brain, and that suited me down to the ground. I mean, I, even though I was aggressive and I wasn't the biggest, I wasn't the strongest, I wasn't the quickest, my game was about being alive upstairs and, and reading things yeah. and situations. So I, I love working with him. What he was trying to point was trying to make is it was a way of him sort of saying, you know, 
use your brain, think about what would you know that type of thing. But it is the English mentality, and, and, and even at times in those big games under Rafa, you think of Istanbul, you think of Cardiff. Twelve months later, we never won that by sort of being clever. That was hard, really. That was everything against what he's about. But those type of games at times, the emotion takes over, especially with Liverpool, the supporters, maybe myself and Steve. You get you do get too emotional at times and. And those games certainly were played with heart, and not certainly how Rafa would have liked to have won them, but we did in the end. A win's a win, and I wanted to go back to that as well because I'm a, I was born in Britain and I grew up, as I said, watching Alex Ferguson teams who did that mix you're talking about, which for Aberdeen it was about skill and, and tactics and brightness, but it was also always about heart. And when I kicked the ball at any level, it was about winning and any old how, really. Mm. And I moved to Spain to try and adapt and learn it grow up and see different things and teach myself that was the principal reason training sessions as a journalist training sessions were open mm. that was about the dominant reason for me moving over there because I mm. thought I can watch training I'll write better and then you know I look at that Istanbul triumph and I look at one of the, the abiding British things was winning in adversity winning from 3-0 down but the thing I wanted to ask you about and focus on was winning when, you, when your muscles won't work anymore because mm. it's equally iconic apart from your brilliant tackles which I think were on Thomason and Shevchenko and whatever there's a point which anybody who hasn't suffered cramp doesn't know that all this chat about childbirth is rubbish cramp, <laughs> cramp's a problem you couldn't move at a certain stage you look like you're going up Everest without air mm. how did you get through it and what was going on in your mind to dominate the situation I wasn't even thinking about the cramp my main thing was to get back on the pitch as soon as possible when you're in that sort of zone People are the crowd, it's like it's not there, it's playing the Champions League final for Liverpool, it's like you do anything not to sort of scupper the chance. I, I needed to get back onto that pitch to make it 11 v 11. The longer it's 10 v 11, they got an advantage of something. My first thought was, okay, stretch off, but there was never any thought that I would come off the pitch or I'd go, I never went onto the pitch worrying, is the cramp going to come back? It wasn't. You're just in a zone, I think, at that at that moment in, in a game of that magnitude. It's just, I need to get back on, I need to get back to my position. You know, I need to, we're playing a back three now, I need to get back to right centre-back. Have you played physically more tired than that? The cramp was worse 12 months later in Cardiff against West Ham. We'd had a longer season. The day at Cardiff that day was so hot. And it wasn't just me that day, that was players on both teams all over the pitch. That was where I was feeling it a week later when I joined up with England for the World Cup and we were training, just this still didn't feel right. But when you play centre back, you don't want to get cramp. It's not the position that you do that much running, to be honest. But no, in that game, a lot of it I think was stretching, clearing balls. The cramp was in my groin. Normally you'll get cramp in your calf through mm-hmm. running. This was more, I think, stretching, trying to cut out crosses. Your focus is when you need to get back on this pitch. It's a mentality thing. It's were you talking? Can you remember if you were talking to the players around you while you were playing? After I'd come back on? Yeah. Just oh, that. yeah, yeah, there will have been. Oh, no doubt, yeah. Can you picture it? I can't, but I, I can't remember me going 10 seconds without saying a word on a football pitch without <laughs> in general. organising or shouting at someone or geeing someone up. Yeah, oh, yeah, that'd have been. Yeah, I'd been in there. At 3 3, can you remember what you were worried about, that what Milan had? Yeah, about them scoring another goal. It's strange, the mentality of football. You go from 3 1, 3 2, and you think we've got to get a goal. As soon as you go 3 3, something comes, you think, oh, We've got something to lose now. <laughs> you have that mentality. It's like when a team are winning to another half time. Why did the other team always come back into the game or put you under pressure? It just, it just, it just happens. It's just, it's just the way it was. But I think what we put into those six minutes or the start of the second half, I think eventually sort of took its toll on us. And we were playing against a team who were far better than us, 
far better than us. And then they changed it round a bit. Rafa had to change it round a bit. Serginho came on on the left because we had Smicer, who was a number ten, if you like, playing right wing back. That's how the team had to be set up second half. Stevie went there then, so I think certainly in extra time we were thinking penalties. If, if we get to penalties, we've, we've won the lottery. You know, we've we've come back for three 0 down with three three. We're hanging on against the best side in Europe, and it took everything. We had me making tackles, Jersey making unbelievable saves, Shevchenko missing an absolute sitter. But no, towards the end there, it was, it was getting extra time penalties. Before we start the tape, I told you that one of my favourite Monday night football discussions was you and Gary, September 2013, talking about David Luiz, Chelsea have just lost to Everton. Mm. And there's a really good philosophical debate about what should a defender in the Premier League do? Should he defend? Can he come forward? Names like Baresi and PK are mentioned. It's a right good debate. Mm. But you're quite staunch about defenders defend. Mm. And defenders, you know, you shouldn't be one-on-one or going on a run or whatever. When the penalty was called in Istanbul, where were you on the pitch? I was on the edge of the box. I was in the box. You were? <laughs> I was a right centre-back stepping out with the ball, football and centre-back. Stepping out or driving right yeah, to the opposition yeah. box and sending up a nice little ball to Milan Barros, no? Yeah, yeah. I in a back three, stepping what out. Happened? So slightly different. But yeah, I think I played the, the ball into something. Did I get one-two? I think I played the ball, stepped out and played, and, and did Barros flick it round the corner for Stevie? Yeah. You play the ball from about eight metres outside the penalty box, right in the Barros' feet, who yeah. lays it off to Stevie. Yeah. Before the tackle's gone in, there's a hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's I'm, I'm trying to get someone sent off, I think. What possessed you? I think, as I've knocked it into Barros, you know what? I think a lot of the. You're playing then, as I said before, on emotion. I'm not saying it was the wrong thing to do, stepping in. But the way we were playing, it was just like. So we're 3-2 So this is for the penalty Make it 3-3 So what I'm saying is In them two minutes Everyone's just like Right give me the ball You bash it in You're actually looking for the ball I think I'm looking for the ball Back off Barros That's why I carry on my run And he goes the I go one way And Stevie goes the other And he flicks it round the corner To Steve So I think I just carry on my momentum You'd have hit it Oh, if, yeah. if he'd laid it yeah. top, top, still going top right now. or top left it'd still be going where the Serginho's <laughs> penalty went I think in the shootout but uh, no I think you get caught up again with the emotion the crowd I'm not saying it was the wrong thing to do but more often than not it's not something I would have done but it's something you used to do as a kid you know you'd eight on your back at school you mm. played striker then you played creative midfield mm. you, you were digging into something that you knew you had yeah, I mean, listen, I think every footballer, whatever he plays, will always play centre-forward or centre-midfield when he's a kid, you know, for his uh, school team, Sunday team. So it's nice for that to come back in the middle of the European Cup final, those memories. Reminded me that I had one like glorious interview with Gary Mack about the Alibis game, how chaotic and fun that was, and what a fantastic team you had. You were equally knackered in that one, weren't you, for a different reason oh, altogether? Yeah. I think we were gone physically and mentally in that game, and we'd played Arsenal three days before and won a cup final from nowhere. The heat was unbelievable that day at Cardiff again. We'd won it late on. And I also remember going to the UEFA Cup final on the coach, and normally a cup final, there's a a bit of nerves, a bit of tension mm. on the bus. And I remember looking round, and it was like we were playing a normal game. Not that we weren't, we were just physically 
even being in like the zone takes it doesn't take a lot but it's like everyone was just like we were shattered played every cup game we could possibly play we won the three cups we ended up getting to the Champions League which we did three days later and we were awful we beat Charlton away 4-0 the first half which could have been 4-0 down we were that but Alaves on a normal day we'd have beat them 3-4-0 and I always remember the celebration afterwards with the Alaves game and I always remember it was like the bath at the end of the game it was more like a swimming pool it wasn't a bath and everyone was just sitting there without saying it we just won the UEFA Cup everyone was just sat there it was like it was so strange I can picture it now because I thought this is so strange but I was part of it you're just physically gone physically and mentally gone like you couldn't even celebrate mm. you just won one of the most probably the most amazing UEFA Cup final of all time mm. we'd got the three trophies the, the treble of the three cups and we had a game three days later against Charlton but I don't mean celebrate in terms of you know getting on the aisle or something when you went back to the hotel but even just you you see pictures, don't you? People laughing and joking in the bath, throwing a trophy around, or you know, old-fashioned pictures. Whereas we were just absolutely shattered. This is the joy of doing this because I've never heard anybody say that before. But you've immediately made me think. By sheer fluke, I was invited into the World Cup winning dressing room, and I came out telling friends, "I've seen our pub teams or Sunday lunchtime teams celebrating an away win against Duffers mm. with more passion than the Spanish boys." A quick hooray. Queen coming in, roughing it out in tears, painted face, the lads posing with the cup, and then, whew, like that, mm. flat, flat, not flat, unhappy, but like yeah. you said, no adrenaline, no mm. leaping about. I think what happens is you, you have a lot of you celebrating on the pitch, what happens when you win a trophy, so I think sometimes that takes it, not takes it out of you, but you feel like you've done it, but certainly with that Alaves one, it was different to the others, you'd still... I can't remember getting pictures in the dressing room with the cup against Alaves, you ate the cup, whereas if you're in the FA Cup or the yeah. Carlin Cup or the European Cup, you're still all... But that one was just like, thank God it's over. You see, that you, what I was meaning by that is that, do you think that as fans, we underestimate exactly how drained and exhausted a footballer can yeah, get? I think so. I think especially mentally, because physically, I think we probably all played football at different levels and for us to get absolutely shattered is a different level to the, the man on the street or the supporter, but maybe not understanding or getting the, the mental tiredness which I think is more which affects your decision making yeah of course yeah it's the build up to the game it's how you're playing well yourself or the team doing well have you made a mistake in the game it's we have to win the pressure of we're playing Alavis in the finals well, don't forget we're expected to win mm. this comfortably can't lose because oh, it's Alavis it's 4-4 yeah. it's golden goal with a few minutes away from penalty shootout it's you know it's just it does it takes you time cup finals are normally the end of the season obviously the end of the season so it's that sort of build-up for sort of nine or ten When you're minutes. watching, though, now with analysts' eyes, do you have to be careful in what you'll say about what you've seen in a player because you're able to factor in maybe more things about why positionally they might be wrong or a pass has been misplaced or they put the ball over the bar when really they should have scored? Mm. Do you have to factor that in? Or if you factor that in, are you always going to sound too careful on the TV? I think basically us on the TV, we've, we've got to put ourselves in the position of the players where obviously me and Gary have probably have been there in different situations or scenarios because you have so much experience at different games, big games, winning, losing. I think last year's game with Liverpool-Chelsea, we analysed the game on the Monday where uh, Chelsea you know, stopped Liverpool winning the league. But it was more the fact of the second half, the effect mentally the first half had had on Liverpool's second half. So they were shooting and crossing from stupid areas. Now... More often than not, you'd pick that up if it was the middle of the season, just saying, stupid decisions, 
why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? Now, that's what we said, but you do factor in the fact it's desperation. Mm. It's not, you know, it's a mental thing. It's not something that they've been doing all season. That panic, that sort of mindset of, oh, they're, thinking, they're already thinking of what, what we're going to lose type of thing. And it's like you just do irrational things on a football pitch. It's a kind of fear. Oh, yeah, yeah, that one was. that game. I've played in games like that, of course. That's what I'm talking about, the cup finals mm. with Rafa, where we played with the heart. It was that. It's a fear. How can we be getting beat to West Ham in a cup final? So, I mean, Stevie Gerrard scores the goal that makes it a 3-3. Greatest goal we've ever seen in a cup final. I'm on the edge of the box. I'm the centre-back. Why am I there? Do you know what I mean? Emotions take over. You find you're back to being a kid on the playground, running round. That's, that's what you like as a kid. And we took it into a big cup finals and won. One of the things I know is that you're a real... Maybe you always have been, but increasingly, maybe increasingly since you stopped playing, you're a real student of the game. I guess you are, but... When you're leading Liverpool, when you're, you're playing for top trophies, you focus on your working sphere. But you are a student and you learn and you go abroad and I've seen you interviewing Xavi in Las Rosas to Madrid, training ground and down with Xavi Alonso at Sabiner Strasse in, in Munich. What has been the process of stopping playing and learning more in depth about some of the continental ideas and decision-making and attitudes that aren't about the things that we grow up with, which is heart and commitment physique and pace I'm not saying Britain hasn't produced players of brilliance and craft you know I'm not saying that for example the degree to which you admired Xavi was long term and it even overtook my admiration for him how do you see a blend between the players you admire from France Spain Italy and what we do naturally as as British athletes British players British coaches I think if you blended the two you'd have it's the perfect match you know, we talk about our passion, that this and that. I think the thing I'd love to get to the bottom of, but that I can't quite put my finger on, is that I speak to foreign players. We watch the way they play. People say they're brought up differently, but we have then foreign coaches who come here who've coached these players. And then I watch Mourinho set a team up. I watch Capello. I've seen Ericsson. I've seen Benitez. I've seen Julier. They're more British than the British managers. I had Brendan Rodgers, Roy Evans, Kenny Daglish. Two Liverpool legends, if you like, in the boot room way. Brendan Rodgers, whose influence you could say is maybe a Spanish influence, the way he plays. Yep. They wanted me to play a lot more football than Rafa Benitez did and Gerard Houllier did. So then people always throw at us that oh, the foreign managers or the foreign players, why do they play this and we do this and, and do that? But that's something I've got to get to the bottom of. I can't mm-hmm. quite work out... Did they come here and coach us a certain way because we were a certain type? And would Rafa Benitez coach differently in Spain? Or, or is just they're the type of managers we got? Mourinho's maybe the best foreign manager. You can't tell me he plays ticky tacker football or he doesn't. So that, that's something I. But what did Capello do when he got the England job? He played Heskey up front. Eriksson played Heskey up front. Julier buys Heskey. Benitez buys Crouch. If that was a British manager, they'd get absolutely battered for that. Then shoot me down. This is where it's always felt like living abroad for the last 14 years you meet people of that generation and what they've been influenced by is the same thing you and I were influenced by when we were growing up watching say Liverpool like, we both kind of grew up in a Liverpool mm. dominant era me older mm. than you and the impact that had on football thinking on the continent was absolutely gigantic they were in a spell then of what I'm asking you now but they're, how do we do that? Mm. in those days in Spain when Liverpool were dominant 70s and 80s 
the football wasn't as technical in Spain. That was growing somewhere mm. else. That was happening as a okay. as a process of how they taught youngsters and what they wanted to emulate. Now I can't speak directly for Capello, say. But Italian football and British football, I think, has probably had more in common about mm. structure and defence and organisation. Not identical, but in Spain, Liverpool had an enormous impact on people's thinking. Mm. So I'm not blown away that Rafa brought things like that to mm. Anfield. He wanted to be part of the tradition. He wanted to write himself into that tradition, which is not a bad thing to want. But I go back to what I'm asking more about is rather than the coaches, the players, because I think the players are different. Mm. My impression is that broadly, particularly Spain where I live, are producing players that are coaches on the pitch, probably more well, intelligent on the grass. Yeah, I, I, When people always say the foreign players are technically this better than us, now, as a whole I'd say yeah, but I've been with Alonso and Steven Gerrard. Alonso is not better technically than Steven Gerrard. Now, I'm not saying it's a competition between the two, but the best English players are technically very good. I think we're lacking a lot more in the understanding of the game. Mm. Massively in England, massively. I think we've got great technical players. So people may say, why don't we keep the ball? England are good technically to keep the ball in a tournament. But I think our understanding of which pass to play, do we keep the ball for keeping sake now to take the sting out of a game? Do we do that? As soon as a player comes into Liverpool, I can know straight away he's got a good understanding of football. I mean, I always read books, read magazines, think about the game. I was probably different to most English players where, without my sort of understanding of the game, I wouldn't have been a player. I'd have been maybe a player lower down or whatever. But my understanding of the game got me to the level I got. It wasn't me, me pace, it wasn't me strength, it wasn't me power, maybe it wasn't me technical ability. It was my understanding of the game. So I always like talking football. You can, if you speak to Alonso, you know, they understand things... Listen to some British players. Stevie Gerrard understands the game. Danny Murphy's very good understanding the game. But a lot of them wouldn't watch football, didn't speak about football. You'd come in after a big game at the weekend. When I was playing all the time, I'd be in Arsenal and United, both going for the title. If they played me, it was like you had to watch it. But you'd come in and some players wouldn't even know the game was on and things like that. So I think, how can you possibly learn or improve as a player yourself without. But I think that comes from maybe even being a I loved the game as a kid. But I was always interested in. You know, what other people thought, how they saw the game. I think the big thing now is with coaches is, is it how you play or is it just about results? That's always a mm. let's say it in yeah. coaches yeah. fall, I think, at times into two different categories. That's a, a debate in itself. But uh, there's no doubt with foreign players, I think their understanding of what to do. Like I was watching the Europa League semi final, Napoli played Dnipro yeah. midweek, and I, I was watching the last 20 minutes. And uh, just watching Dnipro play, so Napoli needed the goal to go through. Napoli never looked like scoring, but Dnipro just just knew what to do, how to kill time, slow the game down, centre forward getting a free kick. That's a big thing for me. What, what winds me up in football when I'm analysing. I think they call it now game management. That's what the coaches call it. Understanding what to do. There's no right or wrong how you play. I don't think everyone has their own style. It's about being successful at it. But understanding what to do if it's nil nil. If you're winning 2-0, if you're getting beat, if it's nearly half-time, it's the start of the game. A perfect example is, uh, one of my last years, I was playing at Chelsea away. We're 1-1, about 15 minutes to go, and we get a throw-in in our half, midway in our half. And one of our defenders is sprinting to get the ball. And I'm screaming, I'm slow down. So <laughs> but the understanding of not knowing that you need to, you're away at Chelsea. If you're playing bottom of the league, 1-1's not... 
you're away from home one one's not a great result if you're away to the bottom team so sprint and get the ball we need to win away at Chelsea one one's okay you've made me think there of, of a game that frustrated me I'm a Scot so I'd you know, I want Scotland to mm. do well, but I lived in England. I reported on England as mm. a you know World Cup reporter, and you know, I want the England team to do well. I certainly want them to be better represented. Mm. This is your, the world's number one football nation. I want I wanted to play with intelligence, and I remember now the build up to two thousand and eight, which was an incredible breakthrough experience for a journalist like me, being with Spain, and they win, and the qualification at Wembley, England Croatia, mm. a draw sees England through. Mm. It goes to two two. And Steve McLaren's team is, is, is bombing on. He's looking for a winner because it's Wembley. We've got to win. No. Mm. No. Mm. A point puts you in the tournament. At 2-2, defend it as if the, your own goal must was full of your children. Mm. Nobody gets past me. Mm. And what happens? They score. There's a mistake. Positioning. And all. You know, I'm, I'm looking at it and I think, no other nation in the world would do that. What the hell is it in our culture that we've lost? Because... 70s, 80s football, Britain wasn't like that. Mm. It was next to no foreigners. What happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, where did so all the football brains go? Mm. TV. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting on the backside yeah. watching it, you mean? <laughs> I, I listen, you started this by saying I can't get to the bottom of it. I mean, I don't have a damn clue. Mm. We've produced some of the best football talents, best football brains in history. There are two or three generations growing through now who think of football as a means just to earn loads of money and mm. have a flash car who don't sit and talk in the dressing room about problems and resolve them through that, that's one thing I've learned as well in continental football very often that the footballs will, will be as analytical as you and there's a problem as much as the coach will come in and sort it they'll talk it through mm. week after week on the training ground in the dressing room until that problem is kneaded out and, mm. and they're a unit again mm. You're laughing at me now because I, I get very excited about this. That's the reason I do these podcasts because yeah. I want to hear answers from more intelligent mm. people than me, which is what I've got so far. Last little section, I want to question you again about something that has been a bugbear of mine and, that, and of yours at Liverpool, which is the, the whole idea of recruitment, how you recruit players. And there's a couple of anecdotes in your book about Stan Collymore and they haven't researched where he wants to mm. live and so on. And then there's all the way through players who weren't good enough to play for Liverpool who were signed up to today with Balotelli who hasn't worked mm. and then you get your club selling Luis Suarez who's had one of the most controversial times in Britain come to the city where I work and he's about to win the treble but if you took a look at recruiting that player based on his actions at Ajax you, you probably shouldn't mm-hmm. what is recruitment of players like from the inside in your experience? Well, in terms of a manager speaking to you about players, it's normally on international duty. Because a lot of fans, I'm sure the, the clubs go into a lot more detail, but you'll see someone on match of the day or a goal, so you think, oh, you do, you do for us. It's not until you've got that place and we do every single day travelling, what's he like as, as a, a team member, a squad member, what's he like around the place. It's not just the ability on the pitch. Craig Bellamy's a good one, similar to Suarez, where you'll hear reports of people saying, bad apple don't go near him but I always look at it at training and playing off the pitch if someone is a bad egg or gets into trouble now again you've got to balance out what they're giving you on the pitch mm. I call someone a bad egg when he doesn't train properly he doesn't try in a game Bellamy's a warrior every day in training mm. trains goes in the gym an hour before yeah he's got a mouth on him and he'll question a manager and he'll have an outburst now and again 
But if I was a coach or a manager, the thought of trying to get someone to train every day or give 100%, whereas Bellamy's interested in football, Suarez wants to train every single day as an animal, wants to play like his life depends on it. They're the people you want in your squad. You'd want them without the things they bring with it, of course. But I'd much rather have someone like that than someone, as you mentioned before, like Balotelli, who you're struggling to get on the pitch. You know, that's, that's, that's what I want, you know, warriors in your team. Now, it's easy for me to say I've never bought a play as a manager, and every manager makes mistakes in the market. I think it's probably the most difficult thing as a manager to get people in, get the right characters in. People always say, oh, we'll scout them properly, we'll, we'll speak to the manager who's had them before. This mm. Everyone sees things indifferently. Yeah. You know, everyone... I might have just said that about Craig Bellamy, but you might ask Graeme Souness, who's managed, and you might go, oh, no, not a chance. It, yeah. There's no... That's why I sometimes think in recruitment, there's that many people involved in it now. It's like... I always think if it, you know, you have a scout, he goes and watches a play, and he said he did this well, he did that well. But I might be a different... I might even think he did that well. I might think mm. that was wrong. Do you know what I mean? It's I do know. You've, you've, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. And what are you originally looking for? How good is your eye? How good are your contacts? I, I suppose that comes from trust. You wouldn't have someone working with you looking for players if you weren't on the same sort of wavelength. I get that. But I always think I'd have to... I feel like I'd have to see everything. I read... I think it was in Michael Calvin's book. That there's, there's a guy, Barry Hunter, was at Liverpool, I think, a scout. Yeah, or, yeah. And there was an anecdote about they wanted Alexis Sanchez. Mm. And they followed him for three days. Cafes, restaurants. What does he drink? Does he drink coffee or water or wine? What? It's probably why he signed for Arsenal. He's getting followed. <laughs> so it didn't come to the perfect conclusion. Okay, point made, which only adds to the fact recruitment's not easy. But I look at that and listen to what you say about depth of understanding of a player's personality and behaviour and training and that. And I look at all the stats you get about fitness and position and possession. There's so much of a microscope on all of that. And it's kind of as if there's a little bit forgotten about how to put that kind of microscope on the guy who's going to mm. produce you all these stats and win you the trophies and have the heart mm. to keep fighting on or to, to lead. There must be a way to understand people better, mm. do you not think? Character. Yeah, there is. I mean, I, I, I remember speaking to uh, Clive Woodward a while ago about like, player profiling. Mm. I remember right I'm sure he got players, even though he wasn't buying them, when they come into the England squad... He'd profile them sort of like you'd have to answer questions, and maybe I don't know if a player would appreciate that or not. And you get the answer of what type of character he was. And he, I think he was just trying to get into football at the time. And he was saying, I, I can't believe profiling's not a massive part of mm. who you sign. And does this player profile go with the one I've already got to make sort of the balance of a team? I think that's something he did with the England squad when trying to integrate new players in there. I thought that was interesting. I'd never really heard it spoken about like that before. I think a lot of managers now and coaches, you think of the money that you're spending on these players, it might be worth it, might you just get them to fill in a form. <laughs> we'll close on, on this theme now with just a hope, fingers crossed, a piece of mutual admiration for somebody I adore. The strangest signing in your time at Liverpool has to have been the guy who the manager six months before picked out in a video and said he's the weakness and who was 35 and had played centre midfield for I think Leicester yeah, at the time. yeah. Coventry. And yet Coventry, and yet came in and just yeah. played like a genius. Gary McAllister. Yeah. Give me a bit of McAllister yeah, in my life, well, please. I, I do remember the meetings. I was playing midfield at that time under Gerard Hulier. And Gerard Hulier's meetings were, were very good in terms of motivating you, pumping you for a game. And I remember him said to me, you're up against McAllister today. You're a petrol car. He's a diesel. I always remember that, you know, because of his age. 
what an inspired signing by the manager. I don't think anyone could really believe it at the time. I think they saw him as a, a father figure to sort of Stevie in terms of he mightn't play so much. He may play it because Jamie Redknapp had a bad injury at the time. Mm. So maybe he didn't want to spend big money on someone because Jamie may come back. You've got Steven Gerrard. So, OK, a bit of a mentor for Stevie. Simply, you know, the attacking central midfield position. But he come in and played that well. That Stevie found himself at right midfield, right back. Because of along- Yeah, exactly. And playing alongside him. Obviously, the first half of the season, I think, was unfortunate with his wife's passing. So he didn't play, I think, so much in that first half of the season. But the second half of the season, the running. He's remembered most by Liverpool supporters for his winning goal at Goodison, the, the Gary McDarby, it's affectionately now called. And if I had to pick one moment from Derby games, that'd be that. Hmm. Seeing him put that, couldn't believe he was going to shoot from there. But he kidded the keeper, Gerard, and we've, we scored. But along that sort of path, the amount of set pieces he scored, and he got one at Coventry, he got one at Bradford away. And also the amount of set pieces that team scored. He was brilliant at finding someone at the near post flick on. Arsenal were famous for it. But his delivery of a little little dink to that near post, flick on, and getting goals from it. But I think a big blow to him towards the end of the season, the cup final. Not playing. Not playing, yeah, against Arsenal. And I can totally understand, I probably think it was the right decision, even though he did come on and change the game. But Patrick Vieira at that time was a monster, and we needed Stevie in the middle, just for that extra power and pace. But Stevie will tell you himself, he couldn't handle that day. I mean, that's a game Stephen Gerrard looks back on and thinks, big learning curve for me, that I thought I was there. Vieira showed me there's another level to go, which he eventually got, and in my opinion, I think surpassed. But in terms of uh, Gary McAllister, he never played that game, but he was in three days later. Stephen Against Alaves. Exactly. The, I think he was man of the match that game, didn't he? He was, and, yeah, and he, he, he maybe put the ball... Yeah, it was his. He, he got the, the goal or the assist, if you like. The, the golden the, assist. The golden, yeah. I think Johan Cruyff may have presented him with the Man of the Match trophy Ooh, not afterwards. Not the worst moment in your life if that happens to you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, his son was playing for Alaves, wasn't yeah. he? Jordi Cruyff yeah, Jordi, that day. Yeah. I think for Gary McAllister, I think to leave Coventry and go to Liverpool, I think even Gordon Strachan was the manager then at Coventry. I think was saying to him, you won't play. Stay here, you play every week. But I think for him to sort of finish his career, I mean, he played for us for a while longer and then went back to Coventry. I don't know if it was player manager or just manager, but... I think for him to finish his... He'd had a great career, but never maybe won the those type of honours that he won, you know, the European trophy. Scoring the winner against Barcelona, I forgot to mention that, against Pepe Reina, penalty. You know, ha, so... Have you mentioned that to Pepe in the past? Oh, yeah, he had yeah. hair then. <laughs> yeah, oh, I No, but it was... He was a young kid then. That's at Anfield, after a nil-nil Anfield, at the Catalan. There's, there's a wonderful picture, which I've seen a lot of in the Catalan media, of a young Steven Gerrard running up and screaming in Pep Guardiola's face. At the end of the match, as it, t- I've Pep's seen that yesterday. I no way. He, was he trying to shake hands with him, or was he in his man? <laughs> <laughs> if that's what you want to call, yeah. yeah. That's a scout's um, handshake. Pep's, that. Pep's, Pep's, Saturnine. There's a black cloud over but, Pep's yeah. head. Yeah. And of course, yeah. It's, it turns out to be his last ever UEFA game for Barcelona. Oh, okay. But the, and just, you know the passion in Stevie and yeah. Pep and the iconic photo. Yeah. Unbelievable, and all thanks to Gary Mack. Of course. Listen, we've finished admiring somebody's talent and uh, laughing. That seems like a good point to stop, because that's what football does. Jamie, yeah. an honour, a pleasure. As good talking to you as it was watching you play. Thank you. Thanks, Graham. Thank you. Magic.
Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 